Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are talking about sex trafficking because in 2011, President Obama actually declared January to be National Human Trafficking Awareness Month and January 11th is National Human Trafficking Awareness Day. So we thought we'd take this opportunity and focus in on sex trafficking because actually a few years ago, we did an episode focusing on the labor aspect of human trafficking. Right, which when you hear human trafficking, labor trafficking actually does make up a majority of what is called human trafficking. But sex trafficking is a very terrible percentage of that. That's right. Um, and in the United States, for instance, about 293,000 children are estimated to be at risk of becoming victims of commercial sexual exploitation, which would include sex trafficking. And that number is coming from the FBI. And the estimate is that sex trafficking around the world is a $10 billion a year business. Right. But what, as we'll get into uh, later in this episode, it really is just about estimates. It's very hard to tell exactly how how many women, girls, boys, men are in the sex trafficking industry are being basically forced against their will to participate and how much money comes from that. So before we get into those estimates, into the murkier territory of sex trafficking, let's talk about what we do know about human and sex trafficking. Well, we do have a legal definition of it. Um, according to the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which was passed by Congress back in 2000, To summarize, it is basically the recruitment, harboring, transportation, provision, or obtaining of a person for the purpose of a commercial sex act, and they're basically being forced into it. Um, And human trafficking, also known as human trafficking in persons, is a modern-day form of slavery. You hear that a lot, that it is our modern-day version of slavery. Yeah, and even though trafficking seems to indicate that you are moving people around under that federal definition, you don't actually have to move people in order to be uh, trafficking them in some way. And when we're talking about minors who are involved in sex trafficking, because that is where this becomes such a, a really big problem is for kids who are under 18 who are victims of sex trafficking. And that occurs when any resident of the U.S. under the age of 18 is commercially sexually exploited. So, for instance, children can be commercially sexually exploited through prostitution, pornography, and or erotic entertainment. And because of the nature of this conversation, um, we should put a warning out there for parents who might be listening with uh, younger kids uh, that there will be some sensitive information, um, any trigger warnings that we need to issue. Here it is. Uh, we're not going to get into any gruesome details, but this is going to be a challenging topic to discuss. Right. And speaking of, as far as minors, speaking of victims, the victims of sex trafficking can really be almost anyone. This is coming from the Polaris Project, which focuses a lot on human trafficking. And, you know, people who are sex trafficked can be men, women, adults, children. They can be from foreign countries or they can be U.S. citizens. And this is not just an issue of, you know, people from poorer neighborhoods being trafficked or being forced to have sex against their will. 
Sometimes these individuals are well-educated, while others might not have any formal education. But there are also certain populations that are going to be especially vulnerable to trafficking, including undocumented immigrants, a runaway and homeless youth, especially uh, oppressed, marginalized and or impoverished groups and individuals. And we have to talk about gender as well, because according to Victims of Crime dot org, 94 percent of the sex trafficking victims in cases that have been investigated by federally funded task forces were female. Well, so we mentioned that, you know, prostitution is definitely a part of this commercial sex trafficking of minors. And Richard J. Estes and Neil Allen Weiner did a study into the ages of children who are part of the sex trafficking industry. And they found that the average age at which girls first become victims of prostitution is 12 to 14. Boys and transgender youth, however, enter into prostitution between the ages of 11 and 13 on average, which is just horrifying. Yeah, because you're you're hearing a lot more stories about how these task forces are focusing specifically on minors who are being trafficked because they're becoming such prominent targets for these criminal rings. And even though, again, the number of people who are involved is hard to pin down because of the nature of the crime, we do know demographic-wise who the traffickers are, who the people who would want to commercially sexually exploit men, women, and children. Um, and the thing is, a lot of times, you'd probably think that, especially when it comes to uh, sex trafficking and forced prostitution, that it's going to be men who are running the show. But actually, there are a lot of women who are running established rings as well. In fact, according to an article in the Daily Beast from August 2013, which was citing research from North Northeastern University and the Urban Institute, 30% of traffickers are women. Yeah, that was pretty surprising to me. I mean, especially when you take into consideration just like the the stereotypes, the ideas you have in your head of who is running prostitution rings and things like that. But these women don't just come into play individually. I mean, they can be part of families who are trafficking people, couples. Um, Sharon Butchbinder uh, was talking to the Daily Beast, and she was looking at 470 news releases from Immigration and Customs Enforcement from 2008 through July 2013, 160 of which were specifically related to human trafficking for either sex or labor. And she broke it down into a chart. And keep in mind, you know, she points out that this is not like a scientific, very precise study, but she looked at the percentages of gender, whether it's an individual, a family, a couple, and... Women, the number of women involved, like being prosecuted for these things is on the rise. Yeah, it is on the rise. And uh, Caroline, when I was reading about sex trafficking and specifically the stories that uh, past victims were telling, the ones that were the most horrifying to me were instances when girls were being trafficked by like friend mother like yeah. friends mothers and or even their own mothers or stepmothers it's uh, it's disturbing to think of women getting other women into such a horrible type of existence and but a lot of times these women too have been victims of sex trafficking themselves. Uh, when you break down who these women are, a lot of times they're around 10 years older than their victims, and they were former victims of sex trafficking who, instead of escaping, decide to go into the same business, maybe because that's all they know, maybe because they don't know how to get out of that criminal underworld. Right, and as Butchbinder pointed out in that Daily Beast article, 
I mean, you've got to make a living somehow. And if you have spent your entire young and adult life being abused, being neglected, being drugged, you know, all of these terrible things, maybe, you know, you don't exactly have a huge skill set. So maybe if you kind of feel comfortable in that line of work that, you know, you've been working in for however many years, you're just going to end up going into that same line of work and abusing girls yourself. And one thing that Butch Binder points out is that, um, you know, our society does not expect women to be predatory. You know, just like you said that you were so surprised to hear about mothers of friends, you know, taking advantage of these young girls. Our society just doesn't think like, oh, well, this mother figure is going to, you know, I can I can stay with her. It's safe. She won't do anything to harm me. But the fact, too, that a lot of these women were formerly trafficked themselves also speaks to a resource gap for getting women or whoever you are, getting people out of trafficking and into more normalized society. Because if that's the only thing that they know, if that's the only option, that says a lot about what needs to be done on the other side of not just arresting people who are doing this, but also making sure that there are rehabilitation resources available to them. Right. And it seems so it does seem so complicated and scary. I mean, I can't imagine being in that life and not having any way out. You know, you feel like, well, I'm just going to get killed. If I try to get out of this, someone might kill me. And so, yeah, they're there. I, I feel like I didn't we read something where the authorities were saying that, like, the newest way they're trying to reach these girls is through texting, oh. you know, like putting phone numbers up in bathrooms or something like text if you're in trouble. And that way, it's not like you're running away and risking, you know, getting beat up by your pimp or your John or whoever, but actually trying to text the authorities. I read that in one of our sources. Yeah, I remember reading that as well. And and it might seem so simple to say, oh, well, someone can just go and, and make a text and then they can go get rescued or they can just walk out and go to the police if they need to. But there are established hierarchies in these organizations to make sure that the victims will stay put. For instance, a lot of times you have almost a flow chart in a way, like an organizational chart where the victims are at the very bottom and then you have other people who might have been trafficked as well, but who have been involved for a longer period of time, who are like a next tier up and then a next tier up. And then finally you get to the the person who might be masterminding the whole thing. Yeah. And there are these people called bottoms in the organization who are victims who've been with the trafficker for so long that they've earned his trust, his or her trust or their trust, um, and ends up collecting money from the other girls, disciplining them, seducing unwitting youth into trafficking and hand, basically handling the business, serving as kind of a secretary for the trafficker. Um, but, I mean, it's not always necessarily a hierarchy. They might, traffickers might have a solo operation or be part of a local, national, or international organization. It kind of runs the gamut. And on top of fear and intimidation that these people will use, it's very common for them to use physical violence, uh, drugs, and financial methods in order to to keep these people from being able to leave, even physically. I mean, if they keep them drugged up all the time, they don't even have the wherewithal to leave and can really only do the traffickers bidding. And then I mean, there's a lot of horrifying blackmail that goes on, especially for um, women abroad, uh, undocumented immigrants who might be trafficked, where uh, they get them to they get them in compromising positions. Essentially, if they're being sex trafficked, there are like naked photographs of them taken, for instance, and 
they'll say, oh, well, if you want to leave, we're going to show these to your parents and mm-hmm. you're going to be completely shamed and you'll be ostracized. And so it's just it's a kind of horrifying web of just tactics that they use to keep these people down. Right. And a lot of times, I mean, if you're a woman in another country and you have no money and your family has no money and you want to make it to the West and earn more money and have that earning potential, you will believe someone who is kind to you and promises love and affection and just says, well, let me hold on to your passport and your identification and your money and I'll get you over to that country where you can get a job and have everything you know that you expect. And then they end up kind of going down in that spiral. Yeah, I mean, and there are even cases of out-and-out fraud where someone will set up a website saying, oh, hey, this is a hospitality school that you can come to in the United States for X amount of dollars, and then we will get you a job, and the people will go over there. And, of course, lo and behold, it's not actually a school, but a trafficking ring. Mm -hmm. Um, But speaking, though, of women in other countries, um, of course, a lot of the focus that we hear about these days in the U.S. is of the trafficking going on within our borders. But a majority of sex trafficking is international and for non-U.S. citizens. And that's even including trafficking within the United States. Right. And so victims end up being taken from places like South and Southeast Asia, the former Soviet Union, Central and South America and other less developed areas and moved to more developed ones, including Asia, the Middle East, Western Europe and North America. And factors that contribute to making it so bad internationally are those factors that we've talked about, including poverty, corruption, gender inequality and oppressive cultural norms. Yeah, for example, uh, there was an article in Forbes uh, published late in 2013 about how in Cambodia, the, the subordination of the women there isn't just the result of too few resources or a broken civil society, but also this belief that women and girls should be subordinate. They don't have access to education. Um, and because of this, they're more likely to suffer the effects of poverty. And from that, you also see stemming a horrible problem with sex trafficking in countries like that and others. Yeah, a lot of times it does go back to those resources, women and girls not having greater resources at their disposal, not having the education or even just the general knowledge of how to do something different. And so what was so great about Somali Mom's column for Forbes, she was talking about her organization over in Cambodia setting up these basically beauty schools so that young women and girls can go learn marketable skills. And they are taught how to do any number of things from doing nails to hair to, you know, general beauty stuff. But that sets them up to be financially independent, to be educated, to have enough knowledge and strength to kind of avoid that otherwise horrible lifestyle. Yeah. Um, New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof actually talks a lot about uh, the issues of sex trafficking in East Asia. And one of the platforms that he also champions is education for girls in developing countries because those two issues are so closely Connected, But even when we move into the United States, between 2007 and 2012, the National Human Trafficking Resource Center in the U.S. recorded more than 9,000 cases of potential human trafficking. And that's the umbrella term with the, the labor and sex trafficking involved. 
But still, the top three victim nationalities were Mexican, Chinese, and Filipino. So even within our borders, it's not like the, the United States is somehow immune from these issues of poverty, the subordination of women, gender inequity, etc. And while we've talked about who the victims are and who the traffickers are in these situations, we haven't mentioned who the Johns are. The Johns being the individuals who are actually purchasing these people for sex. Turns out, according to an article in Vanity Fair, a very lengthy, in-depth article looking at sex trafficking, the average John is married, employed, and in his late 30s. He's not just some random, creepy guy from off the street. So with this collected information of what we know in terms of who is most at risk, where uh, trafficking victims might be coming from outside the United States, who's in the market for someone who has been sex trafficked, etc. There's been a lot more attention focused on sex trafficking, especially sex trafficking of minors in the United States from a criminal justice standpoint. And in July 2013, something called Operation Cross Country took place, and it was the largest sex trafficking bust in U.S. history. And one reason why maybe last year you might have heard a lot about this issue Right. They recovered 105 juveniles and got 150 pimps in 76 cities. That is a ton. Uh, the largest number of children found in one sweep, 12, were recovered in San Francisco. And the arrest of the most alleged pimps, 18, came in Detroit. And this huge nationwide operation involved local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies partnering with groups who often look into sex trafficking issues. And in addition to these national-level initiatives like Operation Cross Country, you have a lot of state-level cases that have been popping up as well. I know that here in Atlanta, I hear a lot about sex trafficking, especially because Hartsfield-Jackson Airport is here, the largest airport in the world. And because of that, Atlanta is unfortunately a hotspot for this kind of activity because you have that major transportation hub there. Um, But there were also big stories coming out of New Jersey, Colorado, Alaska, and Florida last year, along with state-level initiatives to pass and modify sex trafficking laws, to actually get laws on the books, first of all, to punish people, but also there have been debates on reformatting trafficking laws so as to not put victims behind bars who don't need to be there. Right. Right. And I mean, a lot of people see this as a growing, multiplying problem in our country and worldwide. And one of the venues that authorities focus on when they want to combat sex trafficking and human trafficking in general is the Super Bowl and other large sporting events. Um, a lot of headlines come out about sex trafficking around the Super Bowl. And in 2011, Texas Attorney General Greg Abbott called it the single largest human trafficking incident in the United States. And Stephanie Kilper, who's a representative for Operation Freedom Task Force in Akron, Ohio, said it's not so much that you become a victim at the Super Bowl, but that many victims are brought in to be used for all the men at the Super Bowl. Yeah. And according to reporting at Forbes in 2010, 10,000 prostitutes were brought to Miami. And in 2011, more than 100 underage arrests for prostitution were made in Dallas and Arizona, which is hosting the Super Bowl in 2015, has already set up a task force to address this problem. But what does the NFL say? Hey, they say, no, this is actually not a problem. And a spokesman 
for the NFL called it, quote unquote, pulp fiction, that this is actually a problem. And while some would take issue with uh, Texas Attorney General Greg Abbott's statement that it's the single largest human trafficking incident in the United States and that in the scope of this issue, as we will get into in just a minute, but just brushing it off and saying that it doesn't exist whatsoever is it's irresponsible to me on the NFL's part because this is something that also comes up with the World Cup. There was a lot of conversation about that. Any kind of major event, sporting event especially, you're you're going to have this kind of thing happen. Right. And a lot of people came out in response to these articles being like, oh, you know, we have to watch out for sex trafficking. We have to rescue a lot of young women and girls and be on the lookout for that. A lot of people were coming out and saying, you know, don't overreact. A lot of the people being arrested are quote unquote local talent. You know, it's not that all of these women and girls are being brought in from like other countries or other states for the purpose of prostitution. But <clears throat> where I think they have a valid point is just that, um, and, and I mean, we'll get into this too, but there has to be a distinction between, um, trafficked persons, uh, you know, being trafficked against their will and actual sex workers who are making money around the Super Bowl. Absolutely. Um, and that gets us into what we really don't know about sex trafficking. And that distinction, a lot of times, is one of them. There have been busts that have happened where complicit sex workers are being arrested because it is assumed that they are either traffickers or people who are being trafficked. Um but before we get more into that, one other thing that we don't know is the actual scope of this problem. It's all estimations at this point. Um, the United Nations, for instance, calls it the fastest growing business of organized crime and is among the top three largest criminal enterprises in the world. Yeah, that organization we cited earlier, Polaris, said that more than 100,000 people are tracked in the United States alone for the sex trade. But we don't know exact numbers, as the National Institute of Justice points out that, I mean, this is an underground thing. I mean, people aren't putting up billboards. You know, we don't have we, we're not tracking things. We're not sure. And so um, because of the fact that the number of arrests uh, for estimated um, trafficking victims is so small, it leads a lot of people to just say, hey, hey, this is blown way out of proportion. We need to be paying attention to other things and not putting all of our federal dollars behind saving these reported trafficking victims. Yeah, because some people would point to the the ratio of, say, the 293,000 estimated children who are at least at risk of being trafficked in the United States compared to Operation Cross Country, which recovered 105 juveniles. They say, well, is are, are the number of arrests indicative of maybe this being a much smaller problem than it actually is? And so while no one is pro-trafficking, there have been a number of critics of how trafficking is uh, politicized and the way that it's talked about, specifically with the large estimates of, you know, it being the, the this massive thing. 
So because of ratios like that, and obviously that's just one that I'm kind of tossing out there. It's not an official number, but because the numbers do remain so vague, there are concerns that saying that there are these hundreds of thousands of children and adults who might be trafficked is overblowing the problem. Um, and also there are people who, and I never want to say that there, it's not that they are pro-trafficking. Everyone is anti-trafficking. No one wants this to happen. But when it comes to the racial aspect of trafficking and the fact that uh, women of color are more likely to be trafficked, there's an issue with the fact that a lot of times when we see these huge stories in these large media outlets like that giant uh, Vanity Fair piece that you referenced earlier, Caroline, the faces and the stories of women that you're hearing about are white. It's often portrayed, I remember reading one about a girl who used to be in 4-H club, and she was white, and how could this possibly happen to white girls? There's right. always an, uh, this focus almost solely on white women. Yeah, I mean, some of those... Those stereotypes are just so deeply ingrained in our culture. It seems like people are so obviously people should be afraid of and um, upset about trafficking. There's no question there. But it seems like people are so much more upset when it is little Susie cheerleader from down the street, the white girl with the blonde hair. And it's almost as if that portrait is being painted in order to get people's sympathies for this. Like, here's something you need to throw your money at. Because it's your little girl next door, the blonde girl next door getting trafficked. Because if she can get trafficked, then imagine right. how terrible this must be. Not to say that little Susie cheerleader doesn't matter at all, but the question is why is it only the stories of little Susie's that we're hearing? Um, there was also conversation about this coming out of the UN as well, because they have a lot of working groups that are focused on sex trafficking globally. And uh, they talked about how social marginalization and gender inequity often comes up in these issues, but racial inequality is something that they need to pay closer attention to to figure out how that kind of racial discrimination is linked to this problem of sex trafficking because, um, as they write, uh, social marginalization and racial discrimination may not only put women more at risk of being trafficked, but it also determines how they're treated wherever they end up. So it's not only a fact of women of color being more at risk, but at more at risk of being treated even worse if they end up in that situation. Now, in that Vanity Fair article that we've mentioned that looked into sex trafficking, they talk about this this almost racial hierarchy, basically, you know, where we mentioned that largely the face of sex trafficking is a girl or a woman of color, not necessarily the blonde, white teenager from down the street. But in terms of that hierarchy, clinical psychologist Melissa Farley, who's the founder of Prostitution Research and Education, a San Francisco-based think tank, called it eroticized racism, um, where white girls are called snow bunnies and they outclass the quote-unquote ducks who are black girls. And she was saying that um, most of these Johns request the girl next door, the blonde, thin teenager with big breasts. And that is such evidence in, in, in the 
foulest kind of way of this racial discrimination that is that is happening over and over again. And it's not that any of these girls' lives are worth more than the other, but you have to, there's so many different layers to this issue aside from just, oh, sex trafficking, that's horrible. But there's within it, if you look at what is pushing people into either doing it or why people get tangled up in it and those risk factors. There's a lot of those subtleties of gender and race and class that are intertwined with it. And if you look at the history, too, of trafficking laws in the United States, there is a lot of racism that's tied up with it. Um, <laughs> it, it started out being called white slavery, and right there off out of the get-go, we have little Susie Cheerleader, who is at the forefront of our concern because right. we don't want anything to happen to her. Whereas at the same time as the Man Act, a.k.a. the White Slave Traffic Act, was being enacted at that time, for instance, as we mentioned in our history of rape culture, black women would not have even had a legal leg to stand on if they said that they had been sexually assaulted. Right. Right. And I mean, this is such an interesting period in our history. I mean, we have this hysteria surrounding immigration, foreigners, um, women, single white women moving into urban centers, looking for employment, you know, moving away from those rural areas on their own and getting exploited. And and was there some of that going on? Absolutely. But there when I say hysteria, I mean, there was this this idea that um it was going to happen to you mm-hmm. or your sister or your friend. Like it was, you were all, all of these young women were at such a high risk of being basically sold into quote unquote white slavery. Yeah. We found an article about this over at PBS and it was linking that 1910 passage of the Mann Act to Jack Johnson, who was a, a really prominent boxer at the time, who he was a black man who had white girlfriends and wives. And when one of the women, I don't have all the details right in front of me, but when uh, one of the women crossed state lines, I believe to either just join him or marry him, um, people freaked out so much at the idea of an interracial couple, A, and the fact that this you know precious white woman was in a relationship with this black boxer, yeah. that that was fueling part of that panic at the time, this like terror over right. like white female sexuality. Right. And that punishment that Jack Johnson faced was essentially what the Man Act ended up accomplishing. I mean, it, it so rarely accomplished what they said they had put it on the books for, which was to protect women. I mm-hmm. mean, it ended up being a tool to basically persecute minorities. Yeah, I mean, I think he was one of, if not the first person who was prosecuted under the Mann Act. And in the language of that law, it made it a crime to transport women across state lines, quote, for the purpose of prostitution or debauchery or for any other immoral purpose, which essentially allowed them to cast such a wide net. Right. Uh, I'm actually, side note, reading a book about uh, the evolution of yoga in the United States called The Great Oom. And they tie in the Man Act because <laughs> there were these uh, men who were practicing yoga and were all into the tantric movement and all this stuff. And there were white girls who were going and joining them, and they were prosecuted under mm-hmm. the Man Act, even though these women were consensually going to going to join these guys. It was such an outrage. 
Yeah, and I mean, you gotta lo- you gotta love the industrial revolution period. I mean, everybody's just so scared about the changing society, urbanization. You know, people coming from all sorts of different countries and not sounding like you, not looking like you, and the the changing role of women induce so much anxiety among people. And so you have these evolving social mores, and and people start to just draw assumptions about things where they don't exist. Yeah, I mean, it's that kind of paternalistic arm of the law. Um, but in 1949, the UN adopts the Convention for the Suppression of Traffic in Persons and of the Exploitation of the Prostitution of Others. And so it's sort of like uh, a broader type of man act, and it's an anti-trafficking law. Um, but it makes no distinction between free and forced prostitution. And this is something that is still an issue with sex trafficking today, is the question of, is this free or forced? prostitution. Um, because then in the 1980s, you have second wave feminists who helped coin the term sex trafficking. And at the same time, you have sex workers starting to organize saying, hey, we are actually consensually doing this work. This yeah. is our livelihood. Don't mess this up. We are not pro-trafficking at all. We're mm-hmm. all working on the same team, but don't get us arrested. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very interesting that the terms sex trafficking and sex worker come out at about the same time. Um, that that women were, you know, definitely trying to draw those lines between the two and say, not everybody, you know, not everybody's in this for the same end goal, I guess. Yeah, because you you also have these rifts within the feminist movement of women who are 100% across the board anti-prostitution. And so you do have those sex work activists claiming that term sex work and trying to legitimize what they're doing. Um, and it's really up until... 1997, when dozens of trafficked labor workers were found in New York, that trafficking even took on any kind of non-sex connotation. Up until then, any kind of trafficking was considered sex trafficking, and the victims were almost always considered women. Right. And it is around this time, too, that we do get the legal distinction made between free and forced prostitution. And so... What this brings us up to today is that we, we know that it's a problem. As we ran through in the first half of the podcast, we, this is happening. Yes, there are victims. Yes, there are people who are criminals who are doing horrible things. Yes, but there's still there's still a lot of ambiguity because you have things like that law passed by Congress in 2000, the, the trafficking law that, that puts uh, the definition of trafficking into legal terms but when it comes to the day-to-day work the there there's some who would say that we pay so much attention to sex trafficking because this is more of a sex panic yeah i mean there were a lot of columns that we that we saw that talked about kind of kind of what i mentioned earlier you know like people saying you're putting way too much money into this. Is trafficking bad? Yes. Is it awful? Yes. Are there girls and women and boys and men who need to be saved? Yes. But watch your language, that kind of thing. You know, watch the way that you as authorities or people or the media, just watch how you frame the way you're talking about it because not everybody has gotten into sex work the same way. And um, I think 
a lot of advocates out there for sex workers are saying that, you know, the lines need to be clearer and there need to be better resources on both sides. Right. I mean, because the the problem for a consensual sex worker with the kinds of laws that have come down is that it pushes sex work even more underground. So it's making their working conditions even more dangerous because the thing is, no matter how many laws you have in the books, prostitution is going to happen. It's just going to happen. Um, and there are people who make their livelihoods by that and are happy to do so. Um, so by the same coin, though, there need to be more resources beyond just laws to help people get out of trafficking because there was one uh, nonprofit who that has a shelter set up almost as a halfway house for um, victims of sex trafficking who have, who have been rescued, but they only have like eight beds or something. Yeah. And I think it's in New York and, and that, you know, that small number of beds can only clearly house a fraction of people who need it. Right. So what are, what are the other people going to do? Right. And so I think, you know, we mentioned Somali mom in um, Cambodia who has that group um, that educates young girls and women. And, you know, I would love to see more things like that. And, you know, I'm sure there's so much that we haven't even touched on. And maybe our listeners know of some resources like that, some organizations out there who can actually help. So if at all possible, even though this isn't the most pleasant of topics, I'd like to end the podcast on a positive note. And as we often say on the podcast, if we educate ourselves, then maybe we can educate other people. And hopefully through education and awareness and paying attention to facts rather than any kind of panicked portrayals, we can make a more equitable society together. Yeah. And I mean, that's what we try to do, you know, present facts and stats um, and, you know, try to make it clear that, you know, we're not we're not um, trying to promote any sort of panic either. But uh, we we sort of gave you a, a broad brush overview of this very important topic. And if you want to learn more, I encourage you to go to Polaris's website Um where they have a lot of information about like state by state information. They, they have basically tiers, tiers one, two, and three of states who are doing a lot to protect people from the sex trafficking industry. Yeah. And if you're someone who might be working with a nonprofit like Polaris, or if you are a sex worker or work with any kind of sex worker advocacy group that has um, a, a different kind of perspective on this issue as well, we want to hear from everybody about this topic. So you can write to us, momstuffatdiscovery.com, or you can tweet us at momstuffpodcast or send us a message over on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we get right back from a quick break. And now back to our letters. Well, we have some messages here in response to our pie episode, our delicious, delicious episode on pie. And Kate wrote to us. She said uh, she's from San Diego, California. She says, I'm writing to you about your recent episode about pies. Unlike both of your families, the cooking duties in my parents' household tend to be pretty much equally distributed. In fact, it is my dad who does most of the holiday cooking with pies as his particular specialty. This year at Thanksgiving, he made pumpkin, apple, pecan. Uh Uh-oh, she says, pronounced by us as pecan, not pecan. (laughs) And pomegranate meringue pies. He says his work as a chemistry professor makes him uniquely qualified for baking. And my mother happily agrees. 
Just thought I'd share how proud I am of my fair-minded daddy who raised me and my sister to be strong women who also appreciate the art of baking delicious pie. And Kristen, she adds, Thank you so much for the work you do on the podcast. I love having the two of you in my ears as I'm walking to class. I also want to tell you how much I enjoy the YouTube channel. The Herstory episodes are my particular favorite. They make me laugh and laugh. So thank you for listening and watching, Kate. Yeah, thank you, Kate. Uh, well, I've got an email here from Patrick. Subject line, I'm a guy who bakes pies. Hey, Kristen and Caroline, he writes. I'm a man, 30 years old now, who is expected to make pies whenever I come to extended family gatherings. It started years ago when I asked what I should bring for Thanksgiving, and I was told to bring pie. So I broke out the Better Homes and Gardens cookbook and made an apple pie from scratch. Yes, even the crust. That's impressive. Uh-huh. It took a few tries the first time, but I did it, and I took the pie. It was a hit. Thus, it came to pass that whenever I'm invited to Thanksgiving, Christmas, or Easter, I'm expected to make and bring pie. Though I will agree with what you said about the lattice work being too much of a pain, that's why I go for the French apple pie topping, which is more of a crumbled topping made out of flour, brown sugar, and butter. So much easier than lattice, and everyone loves brown sugar. <laughs> Heck yeah. Agreed. Well, thanks to Patrick and Kate and everybody else who has written in to us. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can send us your letters. You can also reach us, though, on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast, or you can message us on Facebook. And if you want to go find all things Stuff Mom Never Told You, there's only one place now on the Internet. And it's www.stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. Bookmark it and come back often. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 